Welcome to the Elk Talk Podcast with Randy Newberg and Corey Jacobson. Presented by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. The goal is what little you and I know about elk hunting, we share with people. I've got an elk building, it's like 120 yards away, what do I do? First off, the thought would never cross my mind when an elk being 120 yards away to call anybody on a cell phone. <laughs> All elk. All the time. Only elk. Only elk. Well, it's us having conversations. So we usually go down some rabbit holes. But if you hunt with Corey Jacobson, you will find the landscape is full of rabbit holes. We're just going to make this up as we go. And you look at it like, oh, that's a target-rich environment. But if you're trying to single one out, a solo target there is much easier to go into than a, a big group. Well, we record everything, so there's no BS and no lying, no faking it with us. <laughs> Did we hit the record I button? I forgot to hit the record <laughs> button. If you want to know something about elk hunting, this probably isn't the podcast to listen to. <laughs> Should we give them a list of all the other podcasts well. where they might learn something? <laughs> The Elk Talk Podcast is brought to you by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, ensuring the future of elk, other wildlife, their habitat, and our hunting heritage. To become a member, go to rmef.org. The Elk Talk Podcast is also brought to you by Mountain Ops, making outdoor energy and performance nutrition to make you a stronger and healthier elk hunter. They have a full line of hunting-related supplements, including meal replacement shakes, multivitamins, pre-workout fuel, and post-workout recovery, and my favorite, their new performance protein bars that, by the way, are packed with 270 calories and 20 grams of protein, but contain less than 6 grams of sugar. Visit mountainops.com to learn more and to order, and be sure to use the promo code ELKTALK to save on your next order. The podcast is also brought to you by Gerber. Uh, go to gerbergear.com and learn about the knives, the vital, the big game vital, the Gator Premium, all the things that we use when we're out in the woods, and not just knives, but also some really cool multi-tools that they have. And we have a promo code for Gerber as well. Just use the code ELKTALK to save 20% on your orders at gerbergear.com. And we are also brought to you by Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls. And Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls is the original designer and inventor of the pallet plate diaphragm that's completely changed the way elk calls are made and used. And to find out more and to order your elk calls, go to RockyMountainHuntingCalls.com or BuglingBull.com and use promo code ELKTALK and you're going to save 15% on all of your elk calls and elk call accessories. The Elk Talk podcast is also brought to you by Go Hunt Maps. We've been using Go Hunt Maps since they started, providing them with our feedback and our ideas to add to their maps and their tools. So if you go to GoHunt.com and sign up for their Explorer Maps, you'll get all 50 states for the low price of $49. And by using promo code ELKTALK, they're going to give you $20 of credit in their gear shop that you can apply towards things you might want for this upcoming hunting season. GoHunt.com, Explorer Maps, promo code ELKTALK. Lastly, the University of Elk Hunting online course is a proud partner of the Elk Talk podcast. And within the University of Elk Hunting online course, you're going to find nearly 60 chapters organized in 17 modules of elk hunting instruction aimed at making you a more successful elk hunter. From planning and e-scouting to calling strategies and packing 
Every imaginable elk hunting topic is included in the online course. And regardless of your previous elk hunting experience or success, I'm confident the University of Elk Hunting online course will make you a more confident, more successful elk hunter. Just visit elk101.com and use the promo code ELKTALK to save 20% when you sign up for a membership to the University of Elk Hunting online course. And with that, Corey, we are ready to get into it. Let's jump into it. Good morning, Corey Jacobson. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm good. I'm just surprised to hear your voice. You've been uh, you've been busy this fall. You know, I I'm home by accident, but I'm happy <laughs> to be home. <laughs> you know, I, I uh, every time I fly somewhere in November, I I I don't get hung up in airports in December, January, February. It seems like if I fly in November, I'm getting hung up somewhere. So I got to spend an extra night in Minneapolis that I didn't count on. So did you uh, spend it in the airport? Uh actually I I kind of begged and pleaded with Delta. <laughs> and I was going to sleep in the airport and my camera guy is like, "Really? We got to sleep on these airport things?" I'm like, "Well, we could try to get a hotel, but by the time we go get a hotel, check in, check out, go through security again, dot 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 dot." We'd probably get more sleep on the bench. And he just looked at me like, you're crazy. You do this? (laughs) So for fear that he might quit on me right there in Minneapolis, I said, well, I'll go see if I can get his hotel. Um, So we did. That's good. I've I've slept in an airport a couple times, and it is, you can't even call it sleeping. No, no. So anyhow, there is some good part to that, though, if you want to know the good part. It made me a day late for the deer hunt I'm supposed to be doing with my crew. There's four of them out deer hunting in Montana right now. And I'm like, hey, guys, I'm you know, I'm a day late now. I just lost today. I got all these things I got to do. I got to do a podcast with Corey, blah, blah, blah. I'll come up as quick as I'm done with all that. So I was supposed to leave at noon today. And then I looked at the weather forecast. Nighttime yeah. temperatures, like negative 5 to negative 10. Daytime <laughs> highs of about 10 to 12 above zero. But winds 25 to 30. Man, that's perfect deer hunting weather, right? Yeah, you think I'm going to sleep in it <laughs> tomorrow night in those conditions after, you know, I'm, I'm probably 70, 75 days already into the season. And, you know, I might be old, but I'm not stupid. <laughs> So the good the good news is you got delayed enough to see the bad weather that was coming and now you're not going. Yep. Because gotcha. otherwise I I would have went out there. You know the forecast when I looked at it a, a couple of days ago wasn't that bad. And then this morning they text me they're like, "Hey boss, if if you're coming up, just know that it's going to be screaming up here." I looked at the weather for us. I'm like, "Hey, thanks for the heads up." And uh <laughs> But uh, then they sent me a text about a half hour later. They're stuck in a huge snow drift. And, uh, you know, Michael says, it isn't a hunting trip till we get stuck at least once. And it's the truck uh, <laughs> stacked up in the snow drift. And good thing uh, there's four of them. They can probably push it out. Oh, uh, yeah. So, and besides that, they'll have way more fun without me there. And it'll be their story instead of me showing up and saying, oh, I got to do this. Got to do that. Yeah. So, yeah. And, 
I, I, I tried. I, I thought you were going to say they called you a half hour later and said, we got a buck down. And I would have thought, you know, I bet the hunting's phenomenal. And they're calling Randy and saying, oh, the weather's bad. You probably just need to stay home. <laughs> Maybe. Trying, to, trying to get you to stay home while the hunting was good. Yeah. Well, they did tell me they when they texted me this morning, they're like, hey, if you are coming up, bring some more firewood. <laughs> Last night, our first night, we burnt two-thirds of our firewood. Holy cow. Yeah. I'm like, you boys better get the chainsaw out and yeah. head, heading over to the nearest burn and get yourself some firewood. So, <laughs> but Anyhow, that has nothing to do with elk hunting. How do no. we get off on that? That's like four or five minutes of just nothing. Started so, with you being stuck in Minneapolis and just yeah. <laughs> snowballed uh, from there. Yeah, you want you want to hear it. something other good about getting stuck in Minneapolis? Did you watch the Vikings and the Bills football game? No, I didn't. Hey, anyone listening who did, the Buffalo Bills have set a new bar as to how you can mess it up and lose a football game. Really? They in, they invented a new way. I have I. <laughs> All the folks in Minnesota were down and out because on fourth and two inches, Minnesota only moved the ball an inch. And so, you know, game's over. 40 seconds, Buffalo's got the ball on the one-inch line. (laughs) Buffalo fumbled the snap into the end zone, and the Vikings recovered and went on overtime won the game it's like i if you were to give me a thousand guesses about that i had never seen a group of people go from the point of near desperation maybe worried about their mental health to absolute ecstasy just yeah i can't imagine what the run on alcohol was in minnesota sunday <laughs> night but. what uh, how are the vikings doing i haven't even followed it at all and i know you're a vikings uh, fan Oh, they're they're uh, they're eight and one. Don't ask oh. me how. They're wow. they're the worst eight and one football team the NFL has ever seen. But <laughs> that's all right. You now, as long as as long as there's charitable teams like Buffalo who yeah. hand it to them, you know. Hey, anyhow, that's another sidebar of getting stuck in Minnesota. <laughs> Let, let's talk about your elk hunting. You were you were renting llamas from Bo Beatty, and you were about to go on an elk hunt. Oh, I was hoping we could talk about terrible football teams a while longer <laughs> well uh i looked at the snow conditions you guys were going to be dealing with i'm like hopefully you can get those llamas on a snowmobile because i don't know if they're tall enough to walk through that much snow yeah no it, uh, we we definitely were concerned about the weather going in and you just you never know especially in the back country the closest weather station we had was 30 miles away or something and so we just you know we didn't have an accurate read on the weather and this time of year you can get socked in and get two feet of snow overnight and (laughs) three miles over it's 60 degrees and warm so we uh you know travel was a concern just getting the the truck with a trailer full of llamas over a pass we needed to go over and then drop down lower uh and then, you know, just worrying about if we got a bunch of snow, being able to get out. So I bought some really nice chains. I've got some cheap chains for my truck, but I bought some really nice, you know, get you out of anything type chains. Yep. Yeah. And uh, so we, we knew that there was going to be some weather. We had a couple backup places. And this area we were going into, I'd actually shed hunted it. And it's in the middle of nowhere. 
And mm-hmm. I knew the elk were going to be up higher this time of year than where they were in March and April. So we kind of made a plan to take the llamas and drive in and then pack in about eight miles up over the top of a mountain and, and down into the area that would put us in reach of where these elk were. And, you know, I went in there a week and a half early. There was just a skiff of snow, so not much snow, just to see if there was water, kind of found out where we needed to be and realized once again that 3D imaging does not always (laughs) accurately represent what the area looks like. So we were going over, I think the, the pass we had to hike over was, I think it was 7,400 feet. And then we're going to drop down to around 6,000 feet and then hunt down the ridges from there. And so we got all unloaded and we'd gotten a snowstorm. What was it? uh, Three nights, four nights, somewhere in there, somewhere within a week, we'd gotten a big snowstorm before we went in. And I was a little nervous driving the trailer in, but we got up there, realized the pass we had to drive over. There was maybe a foot of snow, probably not even that, eight or nine inches of snow. Mm -hmm. And there'd been enough traffic on the road that I wasn't concerned at all. We made it all the way down there without putting on chains. And, you know, chains are kind of one of those things that I don't like to put chains on to drive. I like to use chains as to get get out of whatever pickle you got into. (laughs) Because if you get in a pickle with chains on, then you're you're done. So we made it down there, no problem. Got the llamas out and unloaded. And and like always, Bo Beatty's llamas are just incredible. I mean, the you you get these llamas. I've never been, been around llamas other than two years ago when we rented them. Um, you know, we got four good ones then. So I thought, well, we're getting four different ones now and I'm not familiar with them. And those things are just, they are well-trained, well-oiled machines. And we got them out, loaded everything on them. And we had four of them and we headed in. And so I was leading two of them. Donnie was leading two of them. And Donnie catches up to me after, you know, I waited for him a little bit. He was behind and he catches up and said, we need to do something different. This one back here is just acting up like crazy. I'm like, well, what's going on? He's like, he just wants to be with the group. And he's like, you're going too fast up the mountain. I can't keep up. And the llama wants to keep up. So we, uh, we ended up tethering all four of them together and solved every problem there. The, the one yeah. llama just didn't like being where he couldn't see the others. So yep. <laughs> uh, we, we made it into uh to where we wanted to camp and it's an old outfitters camp so a couple little flat spots right next to a creek and good location uh, there was probably six inches of snow right there where we were camped but we decided to camp on the side of the mountain closer to the truck rather than going over the top just knowing that if we camped on the other side and a big storm came in we would be locked in there with no way to get around so yeah. we we camped there, which meant we had to walk, you know, a mile and a half or so to get up over the top and down to the ridges we wanted to get to. So we got camp all set up and uh, next morning got up and hiked over the top and got down on this ridge. We had, you know, did some, some e-scouting on and it was perfect. Open ridge, open basin. I mean, just absolutely what you would think late season those elk would would be in. Uh, And I got a little nervous because in the two miles we hiked from camp to get over onto this ridge, we didn't see a single elk track. And we got on the ridge and finally cut two bull tracks. And they had been within the last two days. I thought, all right, there's, there's bulls in here. 
And we ended up hiking all the way down this ridge. I don't know what elevation we dropped down to, probably around 5,000 feet. And we could see all the way down to where we shed hunted in the spring. Uh-huh. And we didn't see an elk. Oh. And we were there, you know, first thing in the morning, perfect glassing opportunity. Uh, every single little vantage point we came to, we'd stop and grid. And we weren't even seeing tracks in the snow on the opposite hillside. So I started getting a little nervous. And uh, so we went back up uh, that night. Well, that afternoon, we decided to hike up all the way to the top of the mountain. So we got up on top. There was a good 14, 16 inches of snow that we're breaking through. And we have two llamas with us. We left two at camp and brought two with us. Just learned our lesson a couple of years ago that when you leave llamas at camp and kill an elk, somebody has to walk all the way back to camp, get the llamas, come all the way back in, and then pack the meat out. So we did it a little smarter this time. And uh, we dropped down on this next ridge thinking, okay, if the elk aren't on this one, they've got to be on the backside already. And we could see tracks crossing on the, the main mountain there, dropping down the ridge, but there weren't very many. There were four or five cow tracks and one or two bull tracks that had been through there since the last snowstorm. And so the next morning, we didn't see anything that day. We didn't see a single elk headed back to camp. The next morning, we uh, got up and went back up into that same basin we had started in, thinking those two bulls are in there somewhere. And so we made a big hunt through there, didn't catch up to them at all anywhere. And that evening we decided we're going to track them. We're just going to get on their tracks and, and follow them. And so we did, and they were heading down. I mean, they were definitely migrating out of the high country, heading down their straight line. They dropped from, you know, 7,200 feet in elevation. We followed them down to probably 52, 5,400 feet in elevation. They were still going down. And at that point, we're pretty much out of the snow and, you know, not able to track them anymore. So we made a big loop through the basin and nothing. And we had our, our inreaches. And so we did a updated weather and it said massive snowstorm coming in, you know, big snow. And I'm looking at it going, okay, we've got this mountaintop we're on. There's already 16 inches of snow. They're predicting 12 inches of snow at a thousand feet lower than we are. So I said, well, what let's, uh, let's do this. We're just going to stay in the tents tonight. We'll wake up in the morning, see what the weather does. And if we need to, we'll pack out. So during the night I can hear what I think is, uh, wind, you know, wind howling and snow falling out of trees on the tent. And the wind is howling like crazy. I'm hearing trees falling, you know, it's blowing trees over and then it gets quiet. And I'm thinking, Hey, uh, Corey, sorry about that. We had some sort of technical hiccup here. You were just getting (laughs) getting me all excited about, Oh, the big storms coming. We're up at whatever elevation and we're going to get another foot of snow and we're going to have to live here. And it'll be like the Donner party all over again. I did think about that. Yep. (laughs) So yeah, we just, you know, with the storm coming, um, fortunately we camped on the right side of the mountain. If we'd have been on the back side, I think we'd have probably packed up that night and tried to get Uh out. Uh, but we were on the right side and we decided to wait the storm out and see what it brought the next morning and then make a decision whether to, to pack out or keep hunting. And through the night, you know, when I, I went to bed probably 9.30 or so, and the wind was just starting to pick up. And for the next probably two hours, the wind was just whipping. You know, you could hear it up on the ridge tops, just whistling up there. And then all of a sudden, a big gust would come up through the, the draw we were in. 
and trees were snapping off. You know, there was a burn up above us. So all day when the wind would blow, we could hear trees falling. But now we're down kind of in the draw and trees are falling up above camp. In fact, one time I heard a tree fall close enough to where we were, where we were camped that I kind of laid there and listened to see if I could hear John wrestling around because he was in a teepee just right above us there. And, you know, so it didn't get much sleep there. And then, then things went quiet. And I figured, okay, you know, the storm blew in and now it must be snowing. And every once in a while, I could hear what I thought was snow falling out of a tree and landing on the tent. Well, what it actually was, was snow building up on the tent until it got deep enough that it would slide off. And I heard that multiple times. And at one point I heard John get up and go outside and I could hear him kind of sweeping snow off his teepee and around it and Anyway, I wasn't really sure what we were in for the next morning, but I woke up and looked up on the, the tent. We were using one of Bo's uh, wall tents that he makes, and mm-hmm. I noticed there was a good 16 inches of snow around the edge of the tent. You know, you could just kind of see the shadow of it where it had slid off, but <laughs> we got up and uh, peeked outside, and there was about 12 inches of, of new powder there on our side, and another... I don't know, 700, 800 feet in elevation that we had to go up to get to the top. I'm sure there was another 16 on top of the 16 that was there. And so we, uh, mm-hmm. we made the decision to, to pack out. And so we took camp down in a snowstorm in, you know, 12 inches of new snow, and, uh, which is always fun. And uh, we didn't have a fire going. So, you know, hands were frozen, feet were cold, and we hooked the llamas up, and I just kind of made a beeline getting out of there, but it was really cool. You know, I mean, the llamas did phenomenal in the snow. I put on crampons just because we had steep enough hills to go up and down that with snow, I thought, you know, I used crampons in Alaska and was a believer in them when it got slippery, so I had almost as good a footing as the llamas did. John and Donnie didn't. I, I, uh, I didn't tell them I was packing in crampons, and so they were left to their own device there. But uh, we packed out, got back to the truck. Um, gosh, I didn't know what time it was. Probably two p.m. somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. and uh, left the llamas just tied up at the trailer, and then we drove down the road that we had driven in on and got down low and it was just fog, you know, just fogged in, uh, socked in, weather was coming in, clouds were moving in and we couldn't glass anything. So we sat there for probably 30 minutes trying to decide what to do. Should we stay in the area and just go down lower? Should we go completely out to a new area? And, uh, we decided to, to relocate and we had a good backup area that would get us access to a lot of good ridges below the snow line, out of the storm, uh, where we figured the, the elk should be kind of moving into winter. So we uh, we drove, it was probably an hour and a half, two hours with the truck and trailer and made it down to the bottom. We had one pass to go up and it was just a you know pretty, I wouldn't say nasty, but it was fairly steep, uh, two track road going up over the top. And we started up and there was a lot of traffic had been on it the road was packed down good we did notice there were quite a few trailers parked at the bottom where the pass started uh, <laughs> that had unloaded side by sides going up in there and i thought well we got chains if things get bad and we had half a mile to go to make it up to the pass and uh i'm going up this hill thinking yeah this is iffy like if we lose traction we start sliding backwards things could get Western and about that time we lost traction 
and started sliding backwards. So we're going backwards with, you know, I mean, literally brakes locked up and uh, everything just sliding. So I'm trying to keep the truck in control to keep the trailer from jackknifing. And I did pretty good for about, I don't know, 60 feet, 70 feet or so. (laughs) And then I saw the back end of the trailer kick to the side and the back end of the Uh truck went the other direction. And we jackknifed Uh there in the middle of the hill the trailer fortunately there's a little bit of a berm and it wasn't like it was dangerous like we're going off a drop off or anything but we were getting close to going off the road and and uh so we're pointed the trucks pointed up the hill the trailer's perpendicular and so we got out put the chains on unhooked the trailer and fortunately the trailer had jackknifed enough that it's now literally perpendicular so we unhooked the truck drove it around the trailer got it turned around and then backed up the other way so we could hook up to it and go down and and, uh we actually unloaded the llamas out of it so that i could go down the hill without worrying about it pushing us off the road again and uh drove down i don't know maybe close to a half a mile and Donnie and John walked the llamas down and we got them in there and everything was good other than the fact that we couldn't make it over the pass to get where we wanted to go. So we uh, sat there for a bit trying to look at what plan C was and you know the the access points are so limited in that area that our only other access was to drive clear around the unit and come in from the bottom. And so we did that and we actually stayed in- <laughs> Stayed in a hotel that night. We hit a, hit a little town about 10 o'clock and found a little hole-in-the-wall hotel campground. Stayed there and got up the next morning and uh, went in from the bottom, unloaded the llamas, headed in. And at this point, we are at, I think, 2,200 feet in elevation. And we're trying to make it back up to 5,500 feet or so. And we went in. Yeah, we went in about four and a half miles. And on the way in, uh, we encountered another obstacle. There was a a tree across the trail. Well, you come from a logging family. You got your chainsaw in the truck, right? No, I've got the chainsaw in a panniered with the llamas with me. I thought ahead. The problem is it was a DeWalt chainsaw with batteries. So it's it's got limited. Oh, no, I charged up both batteries. We were, uh, I had, I could cut 180 pressure treated four by four posts with the battery power that I had. Hmm. But I'm looking at this tree and I've got a 12 inch bar on the chainsaw and the Hmm. tree's probably about 30 inches across. Oh, it's a big one. that, That doesn't work very well. It's on a hillside that's steep enough that I'm thinking I'm going to need a rope attached to a tree up there to tie around my waist to be able to sit up and cut this thing where I need to. (laughs) The bottom end of the tree is jammed into a giant cedar, like probably 48 inches across. It's jammed right into it, and there is no way we're moving that bottom no matter where we cut it. It's it's not moving. If I cut the log in the trail there's probably a good 60 feet of the tree above the trail that's going to come sliding down. down. And when it hits that cedar tree, it's going to spin one way or another, but we don't know which way. So I'm looking at right. it going, somebody's going to die if we cut it in the trail. Yeah. So the only option was there was a little bench uh, about halfway up that I thought if I cut it right there at that bench and wedge it just right, 
the upper part of the tree is going to slide underneath the bottom part of the tree and stick in that little bench. And then we can work on the lower half and get it. So <laughs> two hours, two hours into this. We've got ropes tied all over that I'm holding on to. We've got ropes tied that Donnie and John are holding on to to pull the lower end of the log if it goes. I spent probably 15 minutes just making paths over to rocks that I could run and jump behind. So if the if things do go sideways, I'm not getting steamrolled by a couple tons of red fir firewood and oh, still on yeah. the log form. So... <laughs> We get it to where the tree starts cracking. And, you know, at that point, it's like, okay, things are going to go at any point. So now we're on pins and needles. And I, you know, I finally, I'm making a couple cuts and then I'm kind of jumping back to see what it does. And I go up, make a couple cuts and jump back. And it finally breaks loose and wedges just like we want it to. It drives the upper part of the tree right into the bench so that it's not going any farther down. And now we just have the lower part to, to contend with. So we, uh, during all this, I've had to change batteries because the first battery died. So I know I'm on God. borrowed time here. <laughs> we get on the bottom section and I get within about four inches of cutting through and the battery dies. Oh, man. We're two hours into this. The batteries are all dead. We can't break through. We, I mean, we're getting great big rocks and throwing at this log, trying to break the last <laughs> half, and it won't happen. Donnie finally says, well, I have a little handsaw, a little bone saw in my backpack. You want to try oh, it? No. I'm like, yeah, bring it out. So we cut and cut and cut with this little bone saw, and I'm wore out. I mean, I am wringing wet with sweat. It's just, it's taking everything out of me. And I'm like, I'm done, guys. I... I don't know what to say. We can <laughs> set up camp here and try to hike up from here, or we can oh. turn around and just go home. And uh, I'm like, I, I have no energy. I can't even lift that rock to throw at it. And John says, I've, I'll throw it. So he picks up the rock, walks over and throws it at the log, and the log breaks in half. And we uh, we have an access point through the trail now. So we wow. hook onto the, the log that's still above the trail and we, you know, it takes us another 10 minutes to get it moved out of the trail, but we got it, got the llamas turned around and continue up. And, uh, the, the trail leaves the, the flat along the river. And I've been in steep country, you know, the Alaska stuff, all that we're in a burn and it is incredibly steep. Yeah. And if we leave the, the Creek bottom here, there's not going to be a place to camp, like literally not even a flat spot to put a tent out. And we're not close to the water for the llamas. So that was our only option to set camp there. So we got camp set up, <laughs> tied up the llamas, and we had about an hour at most of daylight left. So we burned up the trail. I think we climbed about 800 feet in elevation in about 30 minutes and got up to where we could see the entire drainage. And we sat up there and glassed. And we had spotting scope. We had my 18-power binoculars. We didn't see a track. We didn't see an animal. We didn't see anything. All that. For All nothing. that. And so we're looking at it going, okay, this is our... We have no other access to get in anywhere in here. This is it. And we can either continue up the trail, cross the canyon, and get up on the other side tomorrow and hope that there's something up there and just, you know, wait around in the snow once we get up to the snow level. So we pulled out the inReach again, updated the weather, and... <laughs> 
it's showing a high the next day of 34 degrees with 100% chance of showers, snow until 11 o'clock turning to rain from 11 o'clock uh, on. And we went back to camp and I sat there at the, at the tent and we'd already made firewood. We had, I mean, we'd done everything and we made the firewood without a chainsaw because the batteries were dead on the chainsaw. So that took <laughs> a lot of our time, but we made the decision and, and I told John and Donnie, I have never quit a hunt. I have never with days left to hunt, quit a hunt. I've, I've left hunts without filling a tag, but I'd never walked away before the last day that we were scheduled to hunt. And I said, guys, listen, we've got two more days of rain. I know what the fog's like in here. Our only chance of finding an elk is spotting it two miles away and then trying to make a play on it. And it is steep enough in here that with this snow and rain on top of that, that we, it's going to be dangerous. I mean, there's no doubt we're yeah. going to be slipping and falling and sliding. Yeah. I'm willing to stick with it, but I'm also willing to throw in the towel. If you guys are thinking it's a, you know, I'm looking at it going, the reality is we're not going to find elk. We're not going to get into, we just aren't seeing any sign. If we were seeing sign anything, you know, it would have been a different story. So we, yeah. uh, it's dark at this point. We spent the next hour and a half loading up camp on the llamas. And then we hiked out, walked right past that log. We had spent two hours and <laughs> risked our lives trying to cut out of the way so we could go another half mile and set up camp and then come back out. And uh, we made it back to the truck and we drove back to that same hotel and we stayed in the hotel again that night. And we drove home in an absolute blizzard the next day, the whole way home. Uh, we got stopped twice from bad road conditions. One time a semi was across the road in front of us. And, you know, I, I always have regret when I do something like that, but, uh, I didn't have regrets on this one. I, I think we made the right choice. Yeah. Well, what do they say? Discretion is the better part of valor. So. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a very noble saying. I didn't feel quite that noble on the drive home, but I uh, uh, I knew that we would. It's just, yeah, we could have stuck it out, and maybe something would have happened, and we would have we would have shot an elk. But just knowing the the conditions we were in, the country we were in, uh, it wasn't the right decision. We weren't in the right place to be hunting that time of year. Yeah. Like we'd hoped for. We were a week late. Had we been there a week earlier, the season wasn't open a week earlier, but had we been there a week earlier, uh, it would have been a different hunt for sure. Huh. Wow. That's an adventure, Corey. Yeah. So then that, I that's... then I spent the next day driving to uh seven and hours to Idaho Falls to drop the llamas drop off, off and llamas then off. back home. Driving so. home. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. That's that's a heck of a deal, as they say. I'm, I've been on a few of those excursions before, and they, you, you're, you're mentally, I, I, I can put up with a lot. Of, it takes a lot to get me uncomfortable, but once I get there, it's like, all right. If I'm at the point of discomfort and worry and concern, that happens when it's pretty bad. Yeah. And it doesn't, the the distance from pretty bad conditions of roads, of snow, of whatever, to where it's really bad is not very much. Yeah. And so, yeah, I start getting, once I start getting that discomfort, it's like, all right, time to just pull the ejection button here and call it. Yeah. Yeah. 
raise and, and your hand and say, uncle. <laughs> yeah. And that's the problem is I know how hard we hunt. And had we pushed ourselves beyond where we were right there and gone hard, it could have turned bad, you know, yeah. and just, I think access wise where we were, we were fine. I think we were a long ways from any elk and it's, it's not a good unit to find elk to begin with. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the odds were against us there. And then, like you said, just the, the fact that we've got to climb, then we've got to drop down across this canyon. It's all blowdowns. It's, it's, there's not a bench. It's, you're dropping, you know, from the top of the mountain down, it's 4,500 feet vertical. And then you go up yeah. the other side, even more than that to get to the top. And the elk are somewhere in between where we are and the top. But I think they're closer to the top. And to get there and then get an elk out of there, it's just, it could have been done, but I don't know that it would have been worth the risk. And then the other two areas where we felt we had a chance of maybe getting into some elk, you know, you just sit there and worry if we get snowed in, you know, what can the llamas do? There's 32 inches of snow on top. I think we could get through that, but it continued to snow and the next two days were snowing. Who knows how much snow accumulated up there. So yeah, as badly as I hate to quit and, you know, not even, we didn't even see a live animal on that hunt. We saw a forked Mm. horn whitetail driving on the highway, uh, in between areas, but those are the, that was the only animal we saw. Yeah, man. Well, if it's any consolation in Montana, we have the best elk hunting weather that I can recall for the last five or 10 years. It started opening weekend, which was, I think, October 22nd or something. It was rain. Then it eventually turned to snow later that week. It snowed. It's been snowing in Montana since season opened, and there's enough snow that the elk have had to move. And now we've had some of these cold days. So, unfortunately, I was back in Minnesota looking for a whitetail while all this great Montana elk hunting weather showed up. So, <laughs> I uh, I didn't is it even not see still any. is it not still great hunting weather and the season's still it open? It is. Unfortunately, I got to head to Arizona to help my uncle Larry, and uh, I I should go out today or tomorrow. But having been gone for most of the last three months, the employees want a paycheck. You know, I got to do payroll, accounting, <laughs> you know, things like that that keep the doors open. Uh, but yeah, it's hard to look out the window right now and see this weather, especially with cold weather. You know, now that we've got all this snow, some of it was a wet snow to begin with. And with this cold weather, that's turned to a thick coat of almost ice and they just can't dig through it up there high. So the elk are moving down and this is one of those years and I'm going to kind of cast aspersions of my own self that if if you're going to fill your elk tag in Montana on a general public land hunt, this is a year when you do it. Yeah. And I went elk hunting, let's see, the week before I left for Minnesota, so the first week of November. But I went to an area, I was mostly looking for a whitetail because uh, this area is a limited entry draw. And uh, But I could have shot a cow or a spike. And I threw my back out that morning. I, I, I got up there late, too lazy. To, the wind's howling. It's like 30, 40 mile an hour wind. I'm like, oh, I'm just sleeping in the truck tonight. Sleep in the truck, get up. My pack, so I got a topper on my truck, and my pack's up in the front, 
you know, towards the front end of the bed. So I got to lift the topper, reach up in there rather than drop the tailgate and climb in there. And I reach with my left hand and I, it's hung on something. So I give it a pretty good pull and something happened to my back. You know how when you get a really sharp pain in your back, your legs kind of go weak for a second? I was standing on the bumper reaching over the tailgate when I did all this, and I lost the the strength in my legs, and I fell off the bumper into about four inches of snow. (laughs) I'm laying there in the dark. I don't have a camera guy with me. I'm filming myself on this, and I start laughing. My back is hurting so bad I wanted to cry, but I think my instinct was to laugh for two reasons. (laughs) One, it kept me from crying, and two, I'm thinking to myself, Dang it, this would have been such a funny clip if a camera guy would have been here to record it. So, uh, oh, well, I spent spent that day out there. My back is spasming, so I laid in the snow thinking, well, you know, they say if you get a back spasm, ice is a good thing. So <laughs> I laid in all this snow, and then I started shivering and getting borderline hypothermia because i'm not moving i'm not doing anything but i did see eight elk that day they were all bulls what no, i didn't I, yeah i didn't have a branch antler bull tag man and uh so that figures but this you know we we got some emails from some uh some listeners asking what's it take to get elk moving they were down in colorado and they thought the elk could be moving because of the weather and uh i can't really say for sure how much it takes because it's a function of if you're a drought year and there's no feed up high it doesn't take much to get them moving a really wet year like this year when there's a ton of feed up high it's going to take more snow and probably cold to really get them moving so yeah that combination uh, you know i've seen snow two feet of snow drop and the elk don't even move you know mm -hmm. if it's a warmer snow heavy snow they'll stay right up there in it and then that snow sometimes will melt off it's like you said, you get that heavy snow and then a freeze and it freezes that lower layer of, of snow to where they can't dig through it and they'll drop. And we saw it, you know, yeah. where we were hunting, they went from 7,200 feet where we cut their tracks down to 5,400 feet and it was a straight line. It wasn't weaving around, feeding on a hillside. <laughs> they got on a ridge and dropped 2,000 yeah. vertical feet, you know, in probably a half an hour. Yeah. And that's where I tell people I, a lot of times by glassing, I can tell what the elk are doing. If you see elk tracks just lined out for a mile, they're yep. going somewhere. They're, they're gone. Th- those aren't elk you're going to find that day. Yep. They, they're heading to the lower country or to winter range. If they're meandering and doing the, you know, looks like they're feeding and grazing and moving. Those are the elk I'm looking for because they're probably somewhere around there. But yeah, when they're lined out like that, it's time to go where they went. To. Yep. <laughs> Which isn't easy, you know, when you're talking no. about a trailhead or something like that. When an elk leaves the area, it's not like he's just going a half mile down a ridge. They're usually moving from, you know, you talk about the transition areas. That's uh, They're moving from a transition area to a winter area, and yeah. that can be a long way. Yeah. Did you read the one email we got when we got on the topic of about, uh, I think we were talking about hunting partners and yeah. how <laughs> choosing hunting partners is so important. The one guy sent us uh, to protect the innocent. We can't, <clears throat> can't talk about it all and use any names, but I read that. It was the funniest email I think I've ever received at the Elk Talk podcast uh, comment link. Yeah. It was... Yeah, that that guy he 
makes you appreciate a good hunting partner (laughs) yeah and he was it sounds like he was trying to be a nice guy by taking somebody who really hadn't went out and done it on their own and uh (laughs) wow (laughs) as i'm reading it it's like okay this has got to be the end of the story nope 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 more and more (laughs) i i don't know that i copied you on it but i sent him an email I said, oh, this is, yeah, I said, this is the funniest story I think I've read in a long time. And then he sends me another email uh, that I don't think you're copied on it. He's like, oh, it gets even better. Let me tell you about the ride home. Oh, oh man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm like, oh, gosh, I wish we could read this online. But I'm sure his friend it, could easily get identified or, yeah. or know that there's a whole bunch about. of people listening right now i bet they're like wait a minute did he send an email about me yeah <laughs> <laughs> so you- if 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 someone sends us an email like that we love getting them but put some disclaimer in there or some uh, some language that says you are allowed to read this online <laughs> we, we will not hold you liable if you read this online this this is one of the funniest elk hunting fiascos I've read in a long time. And I bet you everybody probably has one of those. Uh, but if you don't consider uh, yourself lucky, because I think all of us somebody <laughs> that, that really, you know, and, and sometimes it's just ignorance. You know, they haven't hunted before. They don't understand. But yeah. uh, it sounded like in this one, there was some understanding that it was just a matter of selfishness and, yeah. you know, I'm going to use my hunting partner for my benefit rather than <laughs> be, a, be a teammate. Uh, if you can imagine everything from leaving the truck to getting back in the truck at the end of the day, everything that can yeah. go wrong that a hunting partner can do to upset you, I think was included in that email. Yeah, and too much alcohol. Uh, <laughs> driving through a state where marijuana is legal. Uh, <laughs> I, that might have been the second. I was going to say that must have been on the ride home because oh, I didn't. Okay, get that. yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, a recently, you know, uh, a recently divorced hunting partner who uh, is looking for. Uh, how would i say the bar was where he was really hunting <laughs> not yeah. out in the woods so yeah i uh oh gosh that is such a funny story but so i hope people send more of those funny hunting partner stories but if yeah. so and you want us to read it online we got to have the disclaimer that hey, you, <laughs> can, you can say this only share what you want us to share yeah, there you go. That's the way to put it. But uh, I got an email last night from Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks. Uh, and uh, I should probably read it right here. Uh, it says, court order changes wolf hunting season in Montana effective immediately. Hmm. So it rolls back all of our wolf hunting rules and regulations back to, I'd say, probably 2019. So the court has determined that the plaintiff has presented facts and circumstance that a restraining order is justified. So we have a restraining order on our new wolf hunting regulations, uh, such as 
bumping the, the number from five per person to 10. Got to go back to five. We allowed the use of snares for trapping. That's no longer allowed. Uh, and some of our quota stuff and things around Yellowstone and Glacier Park has changed. So that restraining order runs until November 28th, which is the day after which our big game season closes. In Montana, it closes November 27th. Uh, so the <clears throat> judge issued a restraining order where we can still hunt wolves, we can still trap wolves, but some of the... Uh, regulations and, and laws that got passed in 2020 and 2021 are getting rolled back or at least temporarily put on hold until FWP presents its case. So, so they have until the 28th to present their case. Is that? Yeah. The, let's see. They say, uh, Montana fish, wildlife and parks will make legal arguments in this case at a hearing scheduled for November 28th. The court has set the temporary restraining order to expire on November 29th. Oh. So. so if everything goes good, it'll go back to, to the way it was. If right. the judge decides, okay, there's not enough, he can extend that restraining order or make it permanent. Yeah. Man. Yeah. So. Uh, a lot going on in the, in the world of yeah. politics, and it's not even uh, legislature season yet. I know. I'm I'm fearful of that. Yeah. But uh if you saw uh, Washington, the state of Washington has got some stuff going on. Yeah, that's a big deal. I'm I'm trying to think of how to have a podcast on that. Yeah. Uh a Washington Wildlife Commission, I'm gonna call it that. I'm sure they got a different name, but they're wanting or considering or being pressured politically to expand to make the commission more the term they like to call themselves as non-consumptive users <laughs> I, I i just it's like that's an oxymoron if you are you know if you use any resources on this planet you're a consumer okay if you're consuming energy to heat your house, drive your car, make petrochemical products, whatever, you are a consumer that impacts wildlife. If you are out hiking, biking, camping, picture-taking, and displacing elk or deer or whatever as a part of your activity, you are consuming their space. You are consuming their need for quiet habitat. So it's like, give me a break. But we better we better shut that one down before I really go uh, off the rails here, Corey. But what's well, going on in Washington is like, are you folks for real out there? Yeah. Come on. They're basically saying that hunting is no longer needed to manage animals. Yeah, that was kind of what they said. Yeah. Well, if I was a trustee of the Public Wildlife Trust in, in Washington, and I'm a trustee of lots of trusts as a CPA, I'd be like, well, you know, sometimes being a trustee, you have to protect the beneficiaries from themselves. In other words, every beneficiary doesn't just get to say, well, this is what I want. So that's what you got to do. <laughs> you know, you have to make decisions that are best for the wildlife. So if you lose your funding mechanism in Washington, how are you going to fund that agency? Okay, well, let, let's just do this what if hunting's not necessary right 
Okay. As much as you and I and all of our listeners would disagree, that's not the case. How are you going to find fund this agency? Well, you don't need an agency if hunting's not necessary. Yeah, so right. let, yeah. let that's, the, that's let the wildlife say. manage itself. We don't need yeah. human involvement in managing wildlife. Yeah. So there's yeah. no funding which isn't needed because nature just takes care of itself. Yeah. No enforcement, no conservation, yeah. no habitat, no science, no yeah. I mean, and isn't Washington dealing with a pretty bad hoof rot issue? Oh, but but come on, Corey. That the the that's just nature's way that's of nature. taking care of it. Yeah, it's gonna take care of it all right. Yeah. And it's like Give me a break. You know, we manipulate this landscape to the point where wildlife is already living on the fringes of what their historic habitats are. We have a responsibility, a duty to manage all wildlife. Either that or the other option is everybody pack up, get on a ship, restore the landscape to what it was in 1400. (laughs) Everybody get on a ship and go back to where their ancestors came from. And yeah, there'd still be some indigenous folks who got to stay, but that's that that is the Low only impact. yeah that that would be the only way that the human footprint, the human you know influence, is ever going to let nature quote unquote manage itself. That that. Uh, but there are people. That, there are people who are leaders who are elected mm-hmm. politicians and leaders who believe this. Yeah. I mean, that's the sad part is we're at a point that, you know, we, we, uh, it just seems like common sense. We have impacted yeah. wildlife and the environment to a point where we have to be involved. We, we yeah. owe it to them to be involved, to conserve and preserve what they have now. And help yeah. them, you know, change and migrate into these new changes that we've caused. We we owe it to them, yeah. and we've got right. everything in place to manage that through hunting. Yes, it involves taking the life of an animal, but yep. that's to procure the life of the species and make sure that it's preserved. And that's you know, there's definitely a a, a loss for a better gain. Mm. And I just, you know, when you look at these people who just want to shut down hunting completely, completely get rid of any of that loss, they don't realize that there's not going to be a gain had. It's going to be a downward loss and it's not going to end. There's, we just, we've impacted it too much that we can't rely on those cycles of predator-prey cycles where the predators increase to the point where they demolish the, the prey and then they start dying of mange and other things because there's no feed for them and then the prey start to flourish again and we go through those big cycles like have been documented in the past we we don't that doesn't happen anymore we've we've yeah. infringed on their habitat there are so many other factors now that to leave them to to the uh you know just to to let just with the wolves by themselves if you're just let the wolves go and wreck havoc right now on just the elk herds it's gonna it's gonna be sad i mean look at the the moose populations in a lot of these wolf areas completely decimated to zero literally there are areas where there used to be huntable populations of moose they even with management even with hunting on wolves there are no moose. There are no countable moose. They quit doing moose counts because there's zero population. 
And, you know, it's just, that's one small segment in one area, but we just can't allow that to happen. Yeah. That's, that speaks to the fact that when people will say, well, predation is never, you know, how how did they get by with predation, (laughs) you know, in the year 800 AD? Well, they get, had the full, uh, full landscape. landscape available to them. They hadn't been pushed to the margins, and every scientist will tell you predation and disease and all these other factors are greatly amplified when the habit when the animal is relegated to marginal habitats, yeah. and we have mar- pushed them to marginal habitats. So all this, you know. Uh, let's, uh, you know, the wolf is going to come and ask, oh, okay, can we eat you today? You know, uh, <laughs> hey, I, well, it looks, I, like, I, looks like their numbers are low. We better back off on our diet. Yeah. Here. Yeah. It's like, oh my goodness. You know, Tony Wasley is the, the director at Nevada, uh, D- department of wildlife. And he's got some really, he summarizes this better than anybody I know. Uh, Tony sits on the AFWA Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies. He's one of the leaders there. He said, here's how it is in our state, and I suspect this is the case in most states. If you inventory every species in our state, we only hunt 8% of them. We're in charge of managing 92% of the uh, the species that represent 92% of the other species that we don't hunt. And only 5% of our population hunts. So 95% of the people aren't contributing to this wildlife management. And the 5% who are, we quote unquote, if you want to use that term, consumers, only 8% of the species are being part, you know, consumed to some small degree by that 5%. So the other 95% are getting a free ride and the other 92% of wildlife is getting managed and funded by that 5% who pay through licenses, excise taxes, you know, their contributions and donations to nonprofit groups. That you, when you look at it in those terms that the 5% are shouldering the load for 100% of the species and only 8% of those species actually get hunted. That's the best that's the best painting of the reality that I can think of. So if the folks in Washington think that somehow by getting rid of those 5% that that's going to benefit the 100% of species you are smoking crack. They must have legalized <laughs> meth, heroin, cocaine, mushrooms. Every other narcotic hallucinogen must now be legal in Washington, is all I can figure. <laughs> I don't think you're too far off there. <laughs> <laughs> I know. That's the that's sad part. So. Uh, I know. No, yeah. it's, you, you just look at it. And what, what we provide through hunting funds everything for the management of the wildlife get rid of hunting you get rid of management and everybody that's what they're they're claiming they want in washington is we don't Mm -hmm. need management anymore but we do and that's been proven i mean look at the populations of wildlife before you know the 1900s Mm -hmm. early 1900s all the way through to where it is today 
what, you know, you look at all the organizations that are against hunting and the fundraising they do. Does a penny of that go to the wildlife? No. It's all tied up in litigation. They raise money to sue to be able to stop hunting. And once hunting stopped, they're not going to have a mechanism to raise money. Nobody's going to be contributing money to help the wildlife. It's no. just there. there is a sacrifice made, absolutely. A managed and calculated sacrifice that takes the lives of so many animals a year in a way that it never affects the population negatively. So yeah. the population doesn't grow necessarily. It's managed to be able to sustain whatever it can on the habitat it lives on. It's not going to grow, but it's not going to shrink. And yeah. that is guaranteed by the management we have in place. And yeah. that should be that should be enough because we can't guarantee that. In fact, we can guarantee it'll be the opposite if you get rid of hunting and the funding from hunting, the wildlife populations will suffer. Yep. I it's it's such a hard place for me to get my mind around, but I have to accept the reality that there are a lot of people with a lot of money who are trying to do that. I would ask some of them, come here to Montana or Idaho. And yeah, we aren't in a subsistence lifestyle per se, like it was in the 1500s, right? But there are a large number of people I know who hunt cow elk or does or whatever, and they eat it. It's a significant portion of their protein. So they get super high quality protein from the landscape at a cost that is way below what they'd pay for that same quality of protein at the supermarket. Yeah. Not just when they could get the same quality, but they can't. Yeah, which they can't. So I'm like, you come here, come and talk to some of these families who aren't as blessed as I've been in my business life. Okay. None of this is going to impact me in terms of, am I going to be able to afford quality food to put on my table? But there are a lot of people it does. And I'm not trying to say that that's the sole justification for hunting. There's so many justifications for it. But this is a very, I don't know what you'd call it, egalitarian, you know, just such a pompous, arrogant way of looking at it and disregarding People who this is their life. This is their culture. This is what they've grown up on. You know, I I eat more wild game than I'm sure 99% of Americans. And I'm better off because of it. Yep. And they say, well, you could go buy food. Yes, I buy plenty of food. Well, and they want us to, you know, go buy food at the grocery store. So we go buy our meat at the grocery store. But with all these people that are no longer hunting, the price of that food is going to absolutely skyrocket, which then they're going to say, well, you don't need to be eating meat anyway. You know, you should be right. eating plant-based. And it's really, like you said, that that egalitarian, that they're trying to force their lifestyle on us because they right. don't agree with our lifestyle. And yeah. this is the way that they're doing it, by taking away a, a privilege and a right that we have to force us to live like they think we should be living. And yeah. we've never done that as hunters. We've never forced anybody no. to live off of what they can they can get right. themselves, what they can, can you know go out and harvest themselves. We've 
made it available. I mean, hunters are some of the ones that are making things available. Hunters and farmers and ranchers and all of that are making yep. things available for them so they don't have to go out and, and be a part of that lifestyle. But now they want yeah. to take that life, our lifestyle away from us and the way that we live to force us to live like them. And that's just, that's arrogance and that's, that's not going to yeah. work. And I'm going to flip this even maybe 80 degrees and say, for those of you who think we don't need more voices in hunting or for the advocacy of conservation yeah. in wild places and wild things, go look at what's going on in Washington. Yeah. Go look at what they just passed in Oregon as far as a absolute ridiculous gun measure that is going to make it super hard for people to get into hunting. Yeah. Because acquiring a firearm all of a sudden in Oregon becomes this ridiculously complicated measure that I hope gets overturned by the courts. But my point of that is, as our issues get decided more and more at the ballot box or by elected people, if you think that we that hunting collectively, and I don't care what state you live in, if you think hunting collectively is better off by everybody just shutting down, let's not have any groups to represent us, let's just wither on the vine, that's fine. You can think that, but this is <laughs> not my my personality. I don't go down without a fight. So to say, and I don't plan on going down in my lifetime and, and so it's stuff like that, this. What's that? I was going to say, and it's those people that say, Randy and Corey are the reason there were seven trucks at my trailhead this weekend. They're out there trying mm -hmm. to recruit people and we don't need more people. It's already too crowded. Yeah. The woods are crowded, but would you rather hunt with seven like-minded people or would you rather stay home and complain about the politicians in Washington that shut down hunting in the entire state? And now you don't get a hunt at all. You know, yeah. I think it's uh, it's going to be put in perspective, and there are going to be places like Washington that are going to lose more and more opportunity, whether they lose it all together or not. They will lose opportunity, and without more voices to go and make their voices heard at the ballot box, you're you're mm -hmm. fighting a losing battle. Yeah, and if you think there's a lot of pressure from non-residents now. <laughs> All those displaced folks from Washington, Oregon, California, where do you think they want to go hunting? Yeah. They want to Wherever come to Idaho, available. Montana, Wyoming. Yeah. So they, it's it would be nice if these problems were so simple as some want to make it, right? Oh, if we just got rid of this, everything would be fine. Yep. Uh, whatever. You know, I, 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 I get the criticism. I'm fine with it. But the more of that criticism I get, the more I put my shoulder to the wheel and say, you know what, this is what I'm doing. This is how I'm the fabric of what I'm made of. And I'm going to advocate for hunting and conservation and wild places and wild things and access. And this just drives it home even more to see what's going on in Washington, what's going on in quite a few of these states. It's like, you know what, we, we got to. We have to have an organized voice. And I'm sure some will say, well, what are you doing about it? <laughs> I, 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 I do as much as I can with my platforms. Okay. In my home state of Montana, the legislature will convene in January. The number of trips I will make to Helena, Montana, the countless hours me and others I know will spend interacting with legislators. 
would it'll be like a part-time job and that's just you know that's what we do i mean we produce videos about that stuff and here's the i guess the unfortunate part is we do a video about how legislation becomes a law how this impacts you as a citizen we put it on youtube and it gets four or five thousand views in a year yep if I put a video on YouTube about setting my tent up at elk camp, I get 50,000 views in one day. Yeah. So and then, you, then you actually kill an elk and it goes to 150,000 yeah. views. And, you know, again, we're consumers. We're consumers yeah. of the elk and we're consumers of content if it shows us consuming something. But the second yeah. we have to start working to preserve something, the, the number of people interested in that falls off rapidly. Yeah. I, I mean, I learned long ago, Corey, that advocacy is a hard thing to sell. Yep. Now, uh, there's a reason that some things are called the oldest professional in the world. I guess that's easier. You know, it's easier to sell, you know, certain things. Advocacy is a hard one to sell. And I get that. But I'm blessed. You're blessed. We're in these positions and that's what we do. Yeah. You know, we try to get people to to participate, to engage, to to donate their time, their money, their talent, whatever, to these types of causes. And, you know, I looked at how Washington had to deal with this whole spring bear thing last spring. Uh, the number of grassroots groups that popped up in Washington was incredible. Yeah. They did an amazing job. And I hope they don't just give up because unfortunately, even though their department was saying we want our spring bear season, there's no harm in a spring bear season. In fact, there's actually conservation values in having a spring bear season. Their politically appointed commission overruled their department. And I understand that that's got to be so demoralizing if you're one of these grassroots groups. All I can say is keep at it. Keep at it because you guys are an example of how you make a difference. And you may not have won that, that battle, but you're making a difference. And I hope people will support those folks and not criticize them. You know, they're the ones who've said, I'm going to take a day off work. I'm going to go to this hearing. I'm going to get involved. I'm going to reach out to policymakers, blah, blah, blah. Those are the true heroes of, of whatever we end up with, whatever path we end up taking for conservation and for hunting and, and for the things we love. It's those yep. people who, who make it a priority and give up their time to go do it and, well, uh, and I please just, I support them. Yeah, and I always go back to to your philosophy on this that, you know, we we all want the woods to ourselves. There is nothing like going out there and having a whole drainage to yourself full of bulls bugling and not have to worry about somebody else coming in and messing it up or sharing it yep. with somebody else. The reality is for that to happen, we're going to be a very small group of hunters. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's, it, think about it. If there's throwing a number out there if there's 10,000 elk hunters in Idaho and people are complaining that that's too many we whittle it down and that's only going to be the number of people who are supporting it I mean the people who just got you know boxed out and can't go elk hunting now aren't going to support you when it comes time to fight for it so that's not going to work limiting the number of people reducing the number of people is not going to work we want more people to be a voice so how do more people go out and enjoy what we do without impacting people. We've got to build a bigger pie. 
If you yeah. want that same size slice of pie you've always had, and now there's more people waiting for pie, you either cut it down, which is not a winning you know equation, yeah. or you make it bigger. And the way you make yep. it bigger is more access, yep. more wildlife. Yep. And that that should be every hunter's goal. Rather than complaining about too many hunters, figure out what you can do to make more access available and more population of animals available in places where the populations are hurting. Yeah, I mean that's that's a pretty simple equation when you look at it that way. What are you going to do about it? Yeah, well, what I, can I do? <laughs> yeah, that I hope people, however they feel they can make a difference, I hope they do it. And everybody's got a different amount of time available, a different amount of money available. But I always say that advocating for wildlife has three constants. One is it's always difficult. If it was easy, they'd call it golf. Two. <laughs> It's always uncomfortable, right? Someone's going to be mad at you. Some, a neighbor, a coworker, someone's going to say, I disagree with that. You know what? Stand in line. There's a lot of people who might disagree with that. And third, it's always inconvenient. They, they don't put it on the calendar that, hey, on this day, a Washington spring bear season is going to be under attack. Or on this day, you know, some sort of hunting somewhere else is going to have a threat. Or sometimes it's opportunities, right? There's opportunities that come our way that, oh man, we gotta we gotta go take action now. This is this is something we didn't see coming. So if you accept that, uh, for me anyhow, that's the mindset I've I've taken, and it makes it a whole lot easier to just say, all right, this is, comes with the territory. So yeah. this is what I'm gonna do. So. Well, and I just think I, there's opportunities for us to educate those people that disagree too, to a degree. There's always going to be some that it's like, I, I don't care what right. you say, I'm not buying into it. But I think the vast majority of people who might say, yeah, hunting is cruel and that, you know, we don't need to be hunting animals. They aren't educated. And you educate them on what hunting does and what our purpose, our purpose is not to just go out and keep shooting animals and hopefully, you know, someday they're all gone. Our purpose is, hey, we're going to sacrifice a few of these animals to raise funds to support the, the greater good and the greater cause and make sure these animals are here for longer. And, you know, just educating right. people. I still have people come up to me and say, I'm not going to join the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation because they support the wolf reintroduction. <laughs> and like that that is such a weak uh, argument it's not even true uh, it's not it never has right. been but you know for so right. long people were were saying that or i am mm -hmm. i don't support the rocky mountain elk foundation because all the money they get they go and buy land and only rich celebrities get to hunt on it <laughs> it's like yeah. that is not even true show me one show me one area yeah, where that happens do they have rich celebrities that get to hunt sometimes yeah but it's not on property they bought that they're keeping you off of that's right. their whole goal is to open access to more of us and so you know when i sit down and say hey look here is what they do. Here is the proof of what they do. Show me your proof of, of what you're saying to detract from that. I'm like, well, my neighbor told me that and he hunts every <laughs> year, you know, it's like, well, that's, it's not true. Yeah. You know, let's, let's get together. Let's send in our 35 or $40 to one of these organizations and let them run and yeah. turn it into $400 and do some good with it. Yeah. I mean, as much as we want everyone to be a member of the Elk Foundation, if they elk hunt, Whatever it is you do 
for with your time and your money, do something positive, give back something. And yep. yeah, the great part of having a large group is that they've opened up 1.2 million acres or improved 1.2 million acres of public access for everybody. Everybody, con- not just a rich yeah. celebrity. This is for you yeah. and me and everybody. Yeah, they don't even own any land, but they uh, now also seven point whatever million acres of improved and, and conserved landscape habitat. That's that, that's for all that's building a bigger pie. So, yeah. you know, people can find regions to disagree with something. And I always say if if your choice of groups you support, and I don't care if it's the Elk Foundation or your local rod and gun club or the, you know, whatever. Uh, if they if you have some purity test where they got to agree with you 100 percent of the time, you're going to have a membership of one yep. and it's going to be you and you're going to get nothing done zero so but can i can i switch (laughs) gears before my blood pressure we got worked up there yeah you know you built this thing called the university of elk hunting Corey. you built that one 2014 15 i don't know 16 i think 16 okay yeah so as uh you've also been involved in doing courses for this new platform that came out last year last well, this summer called Outdoor Class. Now you have rolled your University of Elk Hunting into Outdoor Class. So if you sign up for Outdoor Class, you become a member or you get access to the University of Elk Hunting. Yep. Do I I got that right? Yeah, and it it just didn't make sense to have all of the content on the University of Elk Hunting and then create some new content that's going into outdoor class and make people buy two memberships to access, you know, the new content and the original university of elk hunting content. So we basically took the entire catalog of all the information, 56 chapters or 59 chapters or something of elk hunting information that's in the university of elk hunting, moved it over to outdoor class and got rid of a, the University of Elk Hunting membership. So now all you have to do is sign up for outdoor class. You get access to all the modules there, you know, mule deer hunting with Remy, uh, your late season elk hunting stuff. I've got some elk calling stuff on there. More stuff's on the way from, I think, all three of us. Uh, yeah. They've got uh, backpacking, backcountry hunting, survival type stuff. There's cooking with Hank Shaw. Uh, there, there's just all these modules there plus the university of elk hunting in its entirety is there for one membership that is the same price as the original university of elk hunting membership so way more value added uh, one membership that you have to manage instead of two access to everything it's just it's pretty cool yeah and if you use promo code elk talk to sign up for outdoor class which now gets you all those things Corey rattled off plus the university of elk hunting all for one subscription go to outdoorclass.com and use promo code elk talk and they'll give you a 20 percent discount yeah how's that that's pretty good <laughs> that sounds like a heck of a deal it does that sounds like sounds like santa claus is showing up here <laughs> Well, when we're on the topic of uh, not allowing people to pay full price for anything, I think uh, Mountain Ops also has a big promotion going on right now. Oh, yeah. Uh, Tell them what that is. 
Well, it's, you know, and I, I see all this stuff. The first part of November, I start getting emails, Black Friday sales starts. I'm like, <laughs> Black Friday is one day, the day after Thanksgiving. Right. Now it's a whole season. But, uh, you know, I think it's just people are used to finding deals on Black Friday. And uh, so everybody's calling their their deals during this time frame a Black Friday deal. But Mountain Ops has a sale. Uh, everything is at least 30% off. Oh. up to 50% off on a lot of stuff. And again, use the promo code ELKTALK and go to mountainops.com and you get to access that. So you also get free shipping. So they're giving you 30 to 50% off on everything on their site, plus free shipping if you use that code. And it's a Black Friday sale, but it's already going on now and it actually goes all the way through December 7th. So wow. stock up on, on Mountain Ops. Man, they're they're that's that's going to be like Black Saturday, Black Sunday, Black. <laughs> I mean, it's Cyber Fridays. I mean, they come up with all this stuff. You know, it's funny. Uh, I I read out on my Hunt Talk forum. People are like, "Oh, I'm so tired of Black Friday sales." But then there will be three posts that show up that say, "Hey, anyone know of any Black Friday deals?" Yeah. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> what? <laughs> or anybody got a promo code? I'm I'm getting ready to yeah. order some stuff here. Anybody got a promo code? Yeah. Well, yeah. my my theory is that the promo code Elk Talk should work just about everywhere. And if it doesn't, call them and say, "Hey, why aren't you giving me the discount for promo code Elk Talk?" <laughs> so, <laughs> but hey, do uh, this will drop in time for people to get in on this. You guys have your crazy Idaho system that goes non-residents got to get on their computer about well black friday because six seven days later you guys are gonna let us buy our over our general whatever you call it or region deer and elk tags december 1st could you put a plug into your agency to just make that a draw for non-residents so when i show up two days in advance and log into the queue i'm not number fourteen thousand in line yeah, and that's, that's all it is, I've, is a draw. They try to make you feel good and say, oh, it's over the counter. But when you're a non-resident and you have to come and you're assigned a random number, and that random number opens up a vault and you're able to pick whatever's left over in that vault, that's a draw. Yeah. That's exactly how the yeah. draw works. So yeah. I have never been assigned a number lower than something in the 13,000s. <laughs> <laughs> So December 1st, folks, if you want to go elk hunting in Idaho as a non-resident, you know, one of, not a controlled hunt, but one of the, what do you guys call them? Regions? Elk regions or something yeah, like that? Yeah, zones. Zones. Yeah, zones. Uh, December 1st is your day. And if you want the details of more on that, you should go to Go Hunt, sign up for their insider, and they've got full-on strategy articles about how it works, all of the zones. And when you sign up for Insider, you promo code Elk Talk also, and they'll give you 50 bucks in their gear shop. And not that you're probably going to apply again, Corey, but Alaska's <laughs> deadline, 5 p.m. Alaska time on December 15th. Anyone crazy enough to apply for Elk in Alaska, December 15th is your deadline. Yeah, oh. it was brought up to me just this week that, man, you guys applying again for elk in Alaska? What like was it's your been, answer? It's been two years since I applied last time, and no, I still have no desire. 
<laughs> and we're we're not saying that to be dissing on Alaska game and fish. I mean, the fact that they can even grow elk in that habitat is quite remarkable. But uh, yeah, it's you better have your your suspenders on when you decide you're going <laughs> to go after those on the so. I'm I am never going to be a disruption or competition for the draw odds of elk in Alaska. Yep. So I just, I, I'm, I'm not. So count me out on that one, but I, I feel it's our duty to let folks know that December 15th is the, is the deadline in case they want to go do what you did. Yep. So here's yeah. just a, a little bit more information on Idaho. I just wanted to get the, from the okay. regulations. So non-resident hunting license go on sale for next year. Uh, mm-hmm. at midnight, December 1st for 2023. Yep. Yep. And then the non-resident deer and elk tags will be sold starting at 10 a.m. on December 1st. Yep. Uh, you don't have to buy a hunting license in advance, but if you don't, you know, if there are issues there, you have to enter a hunting license number when you buy your tag or try to get a tag. And so if you know you're going to be hunting Idaho, it does speed that up a little bit. But keep in mind, if you buy a license and then aren't able to get a tag, your license is not refundable. Yeah. So keep in mind, there are limited number of tags in each zone. So each zone has a certain amount of deer and elk tags available. Uh, and those might sell out in some zones much faster than others. So make sure you have backups that, hey, I really want to hunt the sawtooth zone. Well, it's not available. But uh, here, make sure you have some some other backups there. And like Randy said, you basically show up before 10 o'clock. And I don't even know what time they open the, the portal to start giving you random numbers. But when you show up, if you're the first one in line when they open that, you still don't necessarily get number one you're given a random assigned waiting number. Uh, and then based on that number, when the portal does open at 10 o'clock, they start at number one, but that's not the first person who was in line. That's the person who was randomly given that number. And then you can yeah. look at what's available and purchase it. And when you're done, you have your stuff, you're kicked out and they go to the next person in line to, to be able to purchase. So you might wait an hour and get in there and there's only elk tags left in three zones so if you want to tag those are your only options you might show up at 10 o'clock and get assigned number one and be able to jump right in and have your pick of whatever you want but it's uh it's over the counter but it's limited and it's random so it's yeah a, it's a draw it's uh yeah the it, difference it, is it's a draw that you have to be to in person, basically sitting right. at your computer at that right <laughs> <Yeah>. time. <laughs> uh, I, for the sake of saving people time, it, just tell us, you know what? He, he, put your name, let us put our name in the hat on November 30th, shuffle the deck and say, you know, here you go. Rather than make me show up at 10 o'clock and find out there's 14,000 people ahead of me. Yep. Just send me an email and say, here's your place in the line. I'll be like, thanks. Appreciate that. I'll or even just, pay you 10, 10 bucks so I don't have to stand in line I to find that out. I was just going to say, just charge an application fee of $10, make it a draw. You already run a draw for controlled hunts here. I mean... Call it what it is. It's a, yeah. it's a random draw for a number that gets you a chance to buy a tag. And yeah. I don't so, know. It's, it's oh, unfortunate. Wow. We're watching the true over-the-counter opportunities literally slip through the 
slip through the hourglass yeah. here in front of us. Yeah. I, you know, as the West sees this huge population increase, you're, you're going to see this. You're, you know, you guys, Idaho, for most of the last decade, percentage-wise, you guys have been the fastest-growing Western state. Yep. And, you know, Montana, since I've moved here, the population has increased 50% or maybe more in the last 30 years. And that just the resource can only withstand so much over the counter pressure. And I don't know, some of those changes have already happened in other States, you know, Colorado had in the late nineties, they put all their deer on a draw. Every deer hunt went to limited entry draw because they were the fastest growing state for a long time. Yep. Utah, look at the big changes they went through. And so I, after the elections and all the stuff going on in Oregon and Washington, I'm waiting until I see even more U-Hauls coming to Montana and Idaho <laughs> from Oregon and Washington. Yeah. I, I, I did the Portland and Puyallup uh, sports shows last winter. I can't tell you how many people came up to me and said, hey, soon to be your neighbor. I'm like, what, what do you mean? I'm getting out of here. Yep. And, oh, really? Where are you going? Oh, I just bought some property up by Coeur d'Alene. Or, I, you know, <laughs> I bought some property over by Missoula. Or about, like, whoo. So I think you know, just people wanting to retire places or they look at what lifestyle they want. And Montana, Idaho, Wyoming we're going to get inundated even more than, than what we have been. And yeah. I, I, I think only you're right. Continue. I, I don't know how to change that. Uh, I'd like to see better hunting in Oregon and Washington and California. So those folks didn't feel that they got to move somewhere just to continue to a lifestyle. And buy a gun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but here's what it is. Um, yep. But it, it won't be long. We'll be back in application season, Corey. Holy cow. It's crazy. Yeah. But you want to yeah. know what I'm I'm getting ready to go do? Uh, you're not, I was going to say, you're not going elk hunting. You're not going deer hunting. It must be somewhere sunny that you're heading. Yeah. My Uncle Larry has drawn an elk tag in Arizona. He's a resident of Arizona. People who watch our content, they always are like, we want more of Uncle Larry. Well, <laughs> you're about ready to get Uncle Larry unfiltered. Uh, <laughs> when he drew, he called me up. He calls me New Hab. Hey, New Hab. They say I got one of these elk tags coming. This is my last blankety blank elk hunt. We better make it a good one. <laughs> but I'm so old and crippled up. I don't know that I can walk that far. Usually you try to kill me. And I'm not sleeping in one of those damn tents you bring. So I'm like, don't worry, Larry. I got, I'll got. i rent an Airbnb and we'll find one that he, he says he can't get anywhere for being 76 and 12 years of experimental chemo treatment that's given him neuropathy in his feet. He gets around pretty darn good. He's in really good shape for a guy like that. But... I'm I'm thinking that we're not going to put a filter on him at all. It's just going to be let it record the whole time he's there, and we will come up with some of the best bloopers you've ever seen. <laughs> so, oh, I can't wait. Yeah, so I'm going to miss Thanksgiving because of that, and I promised my wife, you know, I'll be home. We can do Thanksgiving this weekend. So 
even though the elk hunting in Montana is the weather and the conditions are as good as it could ever be for the sake <laughs> of my marriage. I already got an elk in Wyoming, right? And I got an antelope in Nevada. So it's not like I'm going to go hungry this winter. Uh, but Randy, I, I just have to point out, you sound like a politician. What? You, yeah, no, the, the exact, exact, that's, that's like the, a dagger to the heart, Corey. Oh. The exact same weather that's keeping you from going mule deer hunting mm-hmm. is what's making elk hunting incredible. And you're using yeah. these other excuses to not go elk hunting. I'm just, I'm not mm-hmm. buying it. Well, uh, the deer hunting would be out on, more in the prairie foothill country. Uh, and, the, okay. and the wind blows way harder. There. So it's not great weather for deer hunting. It's great weather for elk hunting. No, it, it's, it would be great weather for deer hunting if we had many deer left. <laughs> because of the <laughs> the drought the last two years, FWP put out a, a notice just before season. Hey, you know, certain areas of Montana due to two years of terrible drought, deer numbers are down 35 to 40%. Yeah. Man. But we're still going to shoot as many of them, and we're still going to issue as many doe tags because we wouldn't want to upset anybody. Just know it's going to be a lot tougher. Yeah. So uh, I actually, the day I hurt, you know, I was telling you, I hurt my back that that day I went elk hunting. I saw a four by four mule deer that had. I don't know if deer can get measured. On, what is it? The BMI bass body, body mass, mass index. index. <laughs> this was the most grossly obese mule deer buck I've probably ever seen. Uh, I mean, I've seen pictures of, of ones that look chubbier, but this guy had rolls around his neck and he waddled. And usually where I go, I see groups of mule deer does there. I did not, in, in, in all that snow, walking in a couple miles, I cut four total deer tracks. And that snow had been around for a week. And I saw this guy. And he's over there like 600 yards. And I just didn't have the heart to walk over there and shoot him. Man. Because I, I think he might be the last of his kind. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but also, I was by myself and my back was hurting. So some would say that's why I didn't go shoot him. But no, this is probably going to be the fourth year in a row now that I voluntarily eat my Montana deer tag. I just, where I feel, and I, I know this. For him. Yeah, I kind of feel sorry for him. If I didn't get the pleasure and benefit of hunting all the places I do get to hunt, I would have a different view on it. I, I understand yeah. that because if I already got meat in my freezer, do I have to go shoot another, you know, three and a half year old meal deer buck? No, I don't. So I let someone else do that. You know, I, I don't need to do it. No. So, and this year it looks like I'm going to eat my Montana elk tag because <laughs> I want to be married when all of this is over. And my wife would never say, Hey, you got to be home instead of go elk hunting. But I got an awful lot of a stuff. A wise man do. knows when he needs to be home. <laughs> yeah, I got Without a lot being of told. <laughs> yeah, the things I got to get done before I leave in a few days to go to Arizona is uh, a pretty big pile of stuff. So, well, I it, I take back then. You don't sound like a, politi- a politician. You are <laughs> you are justified in your uh, reasoning uh, to not go on a hunt that you yeah, claim the weather I, is perfect for. I can tell you this, if I did not have a Wyoming elk in my freezer, I would be out, you and I wouldn't be doing a podcast today. 
I would be up in the mountains because I know some pockets where I'm pretty sure there are bull elk stuck in there right now. They just, when we get weather like this, there's a few pockets I know of where there'll be some bachelor groups go in there. And I so badly almost want to just hike in there to see if they are there. Yeah. But I'm, I'm not going to because well, I'm going to leave them alone. But I am going to eat elk this year, though, thanks you to the are. good folks of Wyoming. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, that's a, that's always I I often have these concerns about saying it the way I do, where I'm implying that everybody else should eat their Montana deer tag or their Montana elk tag. I'm not saying that. I'm saying with what I already have in my freezer and my other factors and my concern for the deer, especially. Uh, you know, maybe someone else will shoot that four point buck. I, I don't need to shoot him. Yeah. And, uh, so let somebody else have it. So, or maybe he'll make it through the winter yeah. as fat as he is. I don't think he needs any food. He he could get through <laughs> till April. I, I just living on the reserve. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know what he was eating, man. Have you got into the bovine growth hormones down at the <laughs> ranch down below or what the deal was, but he, he was just like, yeah, you, know, you see, he, if he was on a football team, he'd definitely be the nose tackle. <laughs> and I saw one this spring that, you know, they're very few and far between when you get a buck like that, a mature buck that just is big, big body, rippled. But I saw mm-hmm. one this spring, at, you know, in March or so after they had shed and made it through the worst part of the year, he was still just, he had turned his head to the side and just ripples on his neck you know that muscle and fat and his uh, head was so big and flat and big old roman nose and i just thought oh i'd love to see where he lives in october and november but they just show up about the time seasons yeah. are closed and live the good life there and then disappear but he was one of those ones that it's like a clydesdale just huge huge bodied yeah and this one, I his antlers were nothing remarkable. So I wondered, is it just bad genetics? It's not bad feet. I can tell yeah. you that. <laughs> or is he just old and he's on the way down? I, I didn't really know. But it was fun to watch him. I filmed yeah. him. And uh, I just gave him the peace sign. Hey, good luck, brother. <laughs> Don't go down over there. There's a group of hunters over there. They'll shoot you. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> but, well, Corey, we, we've uh, done some serious storytelling. When I get back from Arizona, I can assure you, elk or no elk, with Uncle Larry, late rifle in Arizona, I will have a story to tell you. I can't wait to hear the recap. Promise you. <laughs> and, and you know what unit it is. I told you what unit. It's a pretty darn good unit. So. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully we can find him one. And uh, he's, uh, let's see, yeah, he just turned seventy six. So it'll it'll be fun. I yep. I enjoy. I'm I'm blessed to have a lot of people who are close to me who we've built our relationship on hunting. And Uncle Larry is definitely one of them. And I, <laughs> I, I, you can see, I already got a big smile just oh, thinking man. about going with him. So, but yep. Well, good luck well, on that. Yeah. Well, you have good luck too. Are you pretty much done with elk hunting now? Switching done over with, to wolves? Done with elk. Got a, a white tail tag still that I don't know. I'm contemplating whether I want to spend four or five days doing that or if I just want to take those four or five days and go set up a tent and look for wolves. So yeah, we'll, we'll hmm. still be getting out. Basketball started <laughs> beginning of the week. So I've got that keeping oh. me a, a shorter chain close to home now, but yeah. we'll, uh, we'll still make it out. 
Yeah. Well, happy Thanksgiving. Yeah. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Yeah. Thanks for being here. Until the next time, we'll uh, send us some more of those funny emails. Uh, <laughs> that, that one was just, that was, a, <laughs> that was as good as it gets. So if anyone's got any fun hunting stories that we can tell online, uh, give us permission to do so. <laughs> and where is that? Elktalkpodcast.com. You got it. Yep. Just hit the contact link and uh, send us an email. All right. Thanks, Corey. Have a great day. Yeah, you too. Thanks for being here, folks.